0: Good morning, my name is Chris, and the Old Testament reading is found in Ezekiel 36, 23 through 28. This is what the Lord God says, "...when I make myself holy among you in their sight, I will take you from the, from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you to your own fertile land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be cleansed of all your pollution." I will cleanse you of all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your stony heart from your body and replace it with a living one. and I will give you my spirit so that you may walk according to my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. Then you will live in the land and I that live in the land that I give to, gave to your ancestors. I will, you will be my people, and I will be your God, the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Casey Converse, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, 1 through 3. So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is what is good and pleasing and mature. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable, since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, found in John 15, verses 4 through 8. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you will be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit, And in this way, prove that you are my disciples. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ.
1: Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask that we would be aware of your Holy Spirit at work in our midst, and that through your Holy Spirit, we would remain in you. That we might produce the kind of fruit that displays to the world that we have been redeemed by your Son. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. I just came on staff uh, in January, so if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, I look forward to doing so uh, sometime soon. As Evan said earlier, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're absolutely delighted that you're here. And our prayer is that you would encounter the presence of the living Christ at work in our midst in a way that uh, brings about transformation in your own life. We are in the eighth and final week of a series on the the Holy Spirit that we've called the Holy Who. And we're concluding that series today with the end of this season of Ordinary Time or Epiphany before we launch into a series on the I Am Statements in John for the season of Lent. But so far in this series, we've covered a lot of ground. We began the very first week talking about what the creed, what this ancient statement of faith says about the Holy Spirit Him being the Lord and the giver of life. Then we spend a week talking about what Jesus says, about the Holy Spirit, looking at some passages in John. Uh, we spent a week talking about how the Spirit empowers us to witness to God's in-breaking kingdom in the world. Spent a couple of weeks talking about the Spirit at work in worship, uh, particularly this idea of spiritual gifts. And then spent another week talking about how the Spirit dwells in us as a community and what that really means for us to be a new temple. And then last week, if you didn't get a chance to hear Pastor Glenn's message, it was absolutely phenomenal. I encourage you to go and listen to it on our podcast. He began a conversation about how the Spirit empowers us to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. It's oftentimes a forgotten aspect of the work of the Spirit that one of the things that the Spirit does is that the Spirit works inside of us to reorder our desires and transform our behaviors that we might live in a way that looks like Jesus. And so he started that conversation and he said that the really beautiful part about the Holy Spirit's work is that the Spirit is the one who is in charge of both the process and the progress in our lives. And we're invited to participate with what he's doing. It's the spirit that works on the inside so we might like different on the outside. And this morning we're going to pick up on that conversation and talk about how do we participate? How is it that we come alongside or cooperate with the spirit is doing in our lives so that we might actually be changed and transformed? How is it that what how is it that we come alongside, participate and join in his work? What really is our role in the spirit's formation? What is our role in spiritual formation? And so we're going to begin there and kind of talk through that today. But as I was thinking about this sermon, I was reminded a little bit of a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I thought it was a really good time to teach our oldest daughter how to ride her bicycle. All right? It was a, we were so excited. It's like, okay, she's now uh, five and a half years old, six years old. She's been riding, the, you know, with the training wheels. So it seems like it's time for her to really be in, to start cruising. And so we went on Craigslist and we found a new bicycle and we got it all fixed up and taken care of. And as a dad, I'm starting to get really excited. Like, I'm going to teach my daughter how to ride her bike. And this is, this is going to be so fun. It's going to be some daddy-daughter bonding time. is just going to be easy. I'm going to do this. She's going to do this and like, it'll be done in a day, all right? This was my thought. Uh, so we got it all done. We got it taken care of. We got Cora on the bike and it didn't go so well. <laughs> it was a horrible failure. I think we would just, after the first day, just said, okay, let's just take a break. Tried the second day. And here we were at the end of the second day. My wife or my, my daughter is on the driveway, just in tears, she's like, Dad, I can't do it, and I don't want to try. Like, I'm just done. And I'm just crushed as a dad. I'm like, I, I have failed. I can't even teach my daughter how to ride a bicycle. And so I, I got to work the next day, and I was talking to a coworker, and she asked, She said, So how's the bike riding going? I was like, It's going awful. And I told her, it's like, you know, which Cora gets on the bike and I hold on to her and there's a lot of this, you know, and this, and she just can't find her balance. She can't really get any momentum. Like she knows how to pedal. She knows how to sit on the bike, but this is all we're getting. And I don't know what to do. I'm standing alongside of her. I'm holding, the. I'm doing everything I can. And she just looked at me. She's like, well, Jason, just tell her to look up. What? It can't, Really, it can't be that simple. She says, no, really, if you just tell her to look at something in the distance, change her focus, she'll be able to find her, her balance and really go. We're like, okay, I'm willing to try anything. And so we get home the next day and get on the bike and say, okay, Cora, what I want you to do is I want you to look at that sign at the end of the street, and I want you to pedal toward that. I let go, and Cora just goes. <laughs> oh this is amazing. (laughs) She's cruising around, you know, and a week later it's, you know, we're trying to keep her in the neighborhood. (laughs) But I think in our conversations about spiritual formation, we oftentimes have a hard time finding our balance and sustaining any momentum. We become so focused on what it is that we're doing and how we're doing it that our lives just end up looking like this. And we we try everything that we can, and we keep trying, and we focus on, okay, what are we doing, and how are we doing it, and how often are we doing it, with how much vigor or passion or or focus or discipline, like, how are we going about doing this? And we just kind of place all of our focus and all of our attention on the striving that we're doing. And yet what we find is that it doesn't actually end up working out very well for us. We sort of resolve, like, I'm going to become a more patient person. And so we start doing things like finding the longest line in the grocery store to stand in. Like at Costco, it's in a half an hour of your time. And you stand in, like, I'm going to learn how to be patient. I'm going to be a more patient person. We start doing all of these things, and then it comes time for to leave for church, and your kids don't put their pants on. (laughs) And all of a sudden, this whole other thing comes out of us. Or a coworker doesn't meet a deadline. And all of that work that we've done for patients just seems to be lost in a moment. Or we realize, like, I just, I'm kind of a stingy person. I'm not really that generous. And so we decide, hey, I'm going to become more generous this year. So instead of giving 10%, I'm going to give 12 And we, we put in all these practices, and we, we start to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do to be more generous. And then what we find, we're still clutching on to that the rest of the money as tightly as we did before. And rather than being open-handed people, we're still tight-fisted. We may be giving a larger percentage, but really our hearts are kind of still the same. Or we decide, I'm going to be more diligent or more faithful in something. We start putting these practices in place to be more diligent. And then our roommate asks us to binge watch a show on Netflix. And there he goes a week. <laughs> and we've lost all of our rhythm and momentum. And I think inevitably when we talk a lot about spiritual formation in our lives, we find ourselves crying in the driveway. We find ourselves with skinned knees and bruised egos, feeling defeated, and it just didn't work. And at that point, we either go all Karate Kid on our bike and throw it in the dumpster, or we just think, oh, really what I need to do is I just need to try harder. I just need to grit my teeth and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and eventually it will all work out. But I think what we really desperately need is a change of focus. When he is talking about spiritual formation in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes about spiritual formation this way. He begins this section. He says, so brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate place to service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you might figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing, what is good and pleasing and mature. In his very opening line, as he begins to get into this discourse about what it means to live as followers of Jesus, Paul refers to God's mercy. Before he says anything else, he references the mercy of God. And it's really a reference back to the previous 11 chapters of the letter. In Romans 1 through 11, this is what Paul is setting up. He's setting up an entire conversation about how it is that God has shown his mercy to us. He begins by talking about how from the beginning of time, the creator has made himself known to us through the created world. And yet we as people have rebelled against him, rebelled against his design, gone against the grain of the universe and found ourselves in places of utter, depravity and despair and yet while we were still sinners while we were still sinners while before we had done anything at all god showed his love for us in this that he sent his son jesus christ to to live to suffer to die on our place and to be raised again and he sent his holy spirit God had mercy on us and made it possible for us to be rescued, restored, renewed, and redeemed through the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection and through the indwelling of the Spirit. Everything else that Paul is going to say stems from this perspective, from this focus. It's because of God's mercy. The Greek text actually says it's by God's mercy, or it's through God's mercy. It's through God's mercy that genuine and lasting change is possible. Not through our striving, but through God's mercy. See, spiritual formation is only possible by and through the mercy of God. It begins with recognizing what God has already done and who we already are in Christ. What God has already done and who we already are in Christ. So the focal point of spiritual formation is on what God has done in and through Jesus and what he's continuing to do in our lives through the spirit. And the process of formation then is becoming who we already are in Christ. It's becoming who he's already made us to be. It's about learning how to live our lives in our new identity living in line with what God has already done. When I was a kid, uh, my family was just kind of a strange family. Um, but one of the things that was sort of core to who we were as an identity as a family is that we wrestled instead of playing basketball, and we went to study hall instead of doing choir and band. It's what, like all of my brothers did. It's what I did. It was what we were told to do. And I remember having conversations like, hey, dad, why is it that we don't play basketball? Like, why do we wrestle instead of play basketball? Why do we wear those suits instead of going on the court? And he's like, well, because you're a Jackson. Jackson okay. I'm like, Dad, why, why can't I do band, require? Why do I have to go to the study hall? Like, maybe I want to, like, learn how to sing. Maybe that would be helpful for me at some point in my life. <laughs> it's like, we don't do that. You're a Jackson. Okay, and this was the only conversation that we ever had was, you are a Jackson, so therefore, you don't, you do certain things or you don't do certain things simply because of your last name. Unfortunately, this was primarily about trivial things, right? And I wish most of them were reversed. It would have been really helpful for me to learn a musical instrument at some point along the way. But I think that there is a basic idea that was present in in my house, which was that our identity in some way shaped our behavior. Who we were determined how we lived. That there was this deep connection with understanding who we were that made sense out of the way that we lived our lives. And I think when it comes to conversations about spiritual formation, we often have it backwards. We spend our time trying to shape our identity through behavior. We try to shape our identity through behavior. We make spiritual formation about personally striving to become different. We make it about living up to some standard rather than living into and out of and through and by the mercy of God. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, spiritual theology does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Instead, the biblical way is to tell a story, and in the telling, invite. Live into this. This is what it looks like to be humans in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Spiritual formation is about living into God's story and living out our adoption as God's sons and daughters. He has rescued us. He has set us free. He has poured out his mercy on us. He has placed his spirit in us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives. We are already his kids and now we're learning what it means to live in a new way in a new family. It's only then in light of God's mercy, in light of all that came before in in Romans chapters 1 through 11, that Paul then tells us to do something. That our focus needs to be on God's mercy. And then he urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God and calls us not to be conformed to this world or to this present age, to its vision and values about what it means to be human, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to have an understanding of God's vision of what it means to be human. What's really interesting in this passage is that we have one active verb and two passive verbs. The active verb is present. Present your bodies. And the passive verbs are be conformed or be transformed. Present your bodies, and as a result, you'll either be conformed or you'll be transformed. Earlier in his letter in Romans chapter 6, he talks about this same idea. This is not the first time that Paul has talked about presenting, but earlier he urged the Romans not to present their bodies as, uh, as slaves to sin, as slaves to what is wrong, but to present themselves to God as servants of what is right. See, according to Paul, whether we are conformed to this present age or we're transformed in light of God's in-breaking kingdom, whether we're enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness, whether we do what is right or whether we do what is wrong, all has to do with with where we place ourselves. What do we present ourselves to? It has to do with by who or what we allow ourselves to be molded. What do we allow to shape us? In other words, for Paul, it says we are essentially shaped people. We are shaped, either we're squeezed by the powers of this present age into its understanding, its perspective, its view of what it means to be people, or transformed, reshaped, renewed into the image and likeness of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We are essentially shaped people. We either place ourselves under the influence of sin and we place ourselves under the influence of the Spirit of God. In either case, we're actually not the ones responsible for the shaping. In either case, we don't shape ourselves. We simply show up. We show up and find that we're shaped and transformed in particular ways. So the best analogy of this I can come up with is something like tanning. Right? Now, I don't do a lot of tanning because my Norwegian ancestors are scared of the sun. And I just, I don't tan. I burn. And then I peel and blister and then life's miserable. But there's a sense like we, if we want to get a tan, do we tan our, like we don't like summon up a tanning inside of ourselves. We place ourselves in the sun's light and find that we're transformed. We place ourselves in a bath, and we find that the longer that we're there, the more that we change, right? My daughters call it getting wrinkly. Something happens that what we place ourselves in, or if we place ourselves in front of a particular talk radio host for hours every day, what happens? We begin to think like that person and talk like that person and reference the things that that person said. We place ourselves in to be influenced in ways and find that change happens. So spiritual formation at its very core is about showing up where God's spirit is already at work. It's showing up where God, the Spirit of God is already at work, placing ourselves there that the Spirit might do the work that only the Spirit can do in us, might actually change us from the inside out. So we present ourselves to Him. We present ourselves to God. We place our lives under His influence. We dive head first into the stream of His mercy. And I say, God, help us change us, transform us as him to mold us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And Paul says that when we do this, our minds are actually renewed so we may be able to know and to do the will of God. We become able to do what is right, not because we tried harder, but because we placed ourselves in God's presence and the Spirit changed us. It's the idea of if we want to stop lying, becoming people that tell the truth. We can try to do that ourselves. Or we can place ourselves in the presence of the one true God. The God who speaks truth over us. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And in spending time with him and in his presence, we begin to embrace the reality and the beauty of the truth about ourselves. And are able to be transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus and become the kind of people who speak truth. We find ourselves struggling with anger. We can try to count to 10 as long as we want, but there's something profound that happens when we spend time with one who is gracious, and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That is the one who is slow to anger who can teach us and show us how to be slow to anger ourselves. We find ourselves struggling with some sort of laziness or lack of energy. It's spending time with the creative, industrious God that can inspire things inside of us and call us out of that place and give us a vision for what it means to work well in the world. If we find ourselves struggling with workaholism and, and identifying ourselves over and over again with what it is that we can produce, we spend time with the God who is the God of Sabbath rest, who reminds us that we're not in charge of the world, that everything in life is not dependent upon ourselves and what we're able to produce, but he's the God that provides our daily bread. We spend time with the one who changes us into his image and likeness. So I think the most important question that we can ask when we're talking about spiritual formation, we're talking about how is it that we actually change as people, is we have to ask ourselves, where's the spirit of God already at work? Where is it that God's at work and how do we place ourselves there? How is it that we participate in his ongoing work? What it is that we do to align ourselves there? Where can we go to experience God's transforming grace? And throughout history, the church has recognized that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, so there is an opportunity everywhere we're at to encounter his presence in some way. And yet at the same time, there are places that He is particularly and consistently present for us. There are these places where God promises His Spirit. He promises to meet us in specific ways, in specific places. He reckon, we recognize that there are these spots in life where He says, Hey, show up here because I'm at work in and through this. So John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, described these things as the means of grace. He said there are ordinary channels, ordinary avenues, ordinary regular ways where God promises to communicate his grace to us. And he says, hey, come here and my grace will be present for you. My transforming grace you will encounter in this place. Other writers call them spiritual disciplines or Christian practices, but I love that image of means of grace. Grace. That this is the place that we go to encounter God's grace in our lives. And these are activities that we've heard about before if you've grown up in church. Things like reading the Bible and praying and worshiping, living simply and giving generously, serving others, following the Christian calendar, receiving the Lord's Supper, and on and on and on. Like you said, if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard things like this before. Uh, It it may even sound at this point like that old kid's song. It's the read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Don't read your Bible, and don't pray every day, and you'll shrink, shrink, (laughs) shrink. This is a horrible song to teach children. (laughs) But I, I think that there is, you know, there's... The problem with that song is that it's actually possible to read the Bible and completely miss Jesus. It's possible to pray and not be changed. Jesus even talked about this. In John chapter 5, he told some religious people, he says, you examine the scriptures since you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet they testify about me and yet you don't want to come to me for eternal life. The reading reading the scriptures and completely missing the one who can bring about change in our lives. We told this story in Luke chapter 18 about a tax collector and a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. They said the Pharisee stood by himself and was praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, that I'm not like thieves and rogues and adulterers or even that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all of my income. Look how great I am. Yet the tax collector stood a far way off, wouldn't even look up to heaven. Instead, was beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector in the corner who went home made right with God, not the religious person who was bragging about all the things that they had done. So we don't do these kinds of things just to do them. We read the scriptures and we pray and we worship and we engage in these practices so that we might encounter the presence of the risen Christ. We do them that we might encounter the presence of Christ through the Spirit. We engage in these practices to place ourselves before God so that we might be changed from the inside out. If we do them for any other reason, if we do them for any other reason, then they are no longer a means of grace. Instead, they become a burden or a badge. They become sort of religious, some sort of religious duty that we feel like we have to do, or they become sort of like place that we brag about. You know, I read through the Bible six times this year. And they become something, some sort of badge that we wear. But when we engage with a focus on what God does rather than what we do. When we see these practices as a means for immersing ourselves in God's grace, and we continue to do so, we continue to immerse ourselves in his presence, what happens is that we're renewed. We are changed. We are transformed. We are made into the image and likeness of Jesus. Somebody come to the scriptures. We read not just to read, but we read so that we might encounter the work of God in the world. We read that we might encounter the Spirit. We immerse ourselves in the story that God is telling and remember who we are. Remember the part that we play. Remember the invitation that's coming and find that the more that we read, the more that this story becomes our story. And we pray, we pray and we come to the Father and we say, Our Father, we remind ourselves that we're His kids. And we come into that relationship as those who've been adopted as his sons and daughters. and We pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. And the more that we pray, we find that it begins to happen that the spirit makes his kingdom our desire. We ask that he would give us our daily bread. And we find that the more that we pray and ask him to do that, the more we find ourselves becoming content with what it is that we have with today's provision we come to things like the Christian calendar, and we don't do them just so that we might, you know, follow along in some way that people have done in the past, but we do them because we say this is a way in which we can take our lives, our calendars, our time, and place them in Jesus's presence. And we can reorder our days around thinking about the life of Jesus And find that as we reorder our days, he reorders us in ways that we never thought were possible. The reason that we serve our church and our city and our world is because we recognize that Jesus says that as you did for the least of these, you did unto me. That when we go and we serve kids in the children's ministry, we serve guests at Guest Central, we serve one another in here, we find that we actually encounter the presence of Jesus in the other person. That when we serve our city and we find ways to partner with like Lutheran uh, Re- Lutheran services and help refugees, that we encounter Jesus in the other. That we help the Springs Rescue Mission, we encounter Jesus in the marginalized, and oftentimes we are the ones who are most changed because we're encountering the presence of Jesus through service. And the same thing is true then when we come to the table. But the table is not just something that we do every single week. But as Pastor Glenn talks about every time that we come to this point in the service, that the table is a place of remembrance and encounter and anticipation. So as the worship team comes forward, this is what it is that we're doing. We're coming to this table and we are remembering God's mercy. We're placing our focus on the mercy of God and recognizing that true change in our lives is only possible by and through the mercy of God. And then we come recognizing that this is also a place of encounter. Throughout history the church has debated about how Jesus is present at the table. And a lot of traditions will even place an emphasis on how the presence of God transforms the bread and the wine. I think the real mystery and the, re- and the real beauty of the table is not how the elements are transformed, but by how we are. How it is that we come to this place and we encounter Jesus, that He promises His grace here, and it's His grace and His presence that begin to transform us as we continually come and we continually immerse ourselves. And we come also with anticipation as we look forward to that day when Christ comes again in final victory We feast at his heavenly banquet and we are totally and utterly and completely set free, completely transformed. So as we prepare to come to the table, let's pray.